school. We're talking today about the Messianic prophecies from the book of Isaiah. Of all the Old Testament books foretelling the Messiah, Isaiah is the one most quoted in the New Testament. What God gave Isaiah to say about Christ is very significant. As we've already seen in this course, the Old Testament has gradually been revealing more and more about a coming one from God, an anointed one, the Messiah. In Genesis 3, 14 to 15, God foretold the sinful serpent's defeat and destruction brought about by the seed of the woman. The seed shall crush the serpent's head while only being wounded on the heel. In Genesis 12, 3 and 22, 18, God told Abraham that through his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Peter later interprets this seed in the New Testament as singular. That is, it refers to just one person. Andrew, let me know if we need to switch to the, the other method. In Genesis 49.10, Jacob prophesied that the scepter would not depart from Judah and that dominion eventually would be given to the one to whom it belongs. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses prophesied that God would raise up a prophet, a special prophet for Israel, one like Moses. And this, he would come from Israel, and all Israel must listen to this prophet. In 2 Samuel 7, 11-16, God promised David that God would establish his royal house to always reign in the land. And God also promised that David's seed would have a kingdom that would be established forever. The Psalms foretold, foretold various truths about the Messiah, including that he would be David's descendant and yet David's Lord. And that's in uh, Psalm 110, exercising rule on the earth. He would be David's Lord. He would be betrayed by his brethren and seemingly forsaken by God, Psalm 22. But God would actually vindicate him and allow his body to not be corrupted in the grave. That's Psalm 16. Do we need to switch to the other method? Okay, that's fine. Uh, just give me the clicker when, when you can. So in Psalm 16, he, he foretells that he's not going to remain in the grave. He won't, his body won't see corruption. More recently, we saw in Hosea, Hosea 1.11, that Judah and Israel will one day be, re, be reunited under one ruler. And then, last week in Micah, Micah 5, 2 to 5, we learned some specific information about the Messiah. What are some of the things that Micah told us about the coming one? Where he would come from, where he would be born. He would be born in Bethlehem of Judah. What else? Yes, Joe. Right. Yeah, so he would rule and um, uh, his rule would last. What else? Where's his, uh, where are his going forth, goings forth from? Of old. Uh, even from eternity past. He's going, his, his going forth are from ancient times. He will not come. Micah also said he will not come until Israel's birth labor was over. But when he comes, he will shepherd Israel in the strength and majesty of the Lord. Thanks. He will be great and he will be Israel's peace. So 
as we are moving through the Old Testament, God reveals more and more to his people through his prophets about who the Messiah is when, and when he will come. And what are those circumstances going to be? It's getting clearer and clearer. And yet, the more that is revealed about the Messiah, the more amazing the Messiah shows himself to be. And the more, um, I don't want to say unbelievable in the sense of like uh, you can't believe him, but it just becomes more and more astounding what God actually has in mind with the Messiah. Can you uh, make sure uh, the clicker's ready? Still, still nothing there. Uh, you can do it manually if, okay. So just go to the um, the end of that that slide there. So it's becoming more and more amazing. But now we come to Isaiah. What Isaiah has to say about the about the Messiah is going to be even more astonishing. Some new information some more specifics they are going to be even more amazing when it comes to Messiah. Now, Isaiah is a very large book. It features words of rebuke and judgment against Israel and other nations. It has words of encouragement and restoration for God's people, but also has information specifically about Israel's Christ, about Israel's coming one. So that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Even those passages, there are, there are many of them, and they're very poignant, so it's going to be, it's going to be a little bit uh, difficult to even mine all of what's there. We're going to do our best to, with the time we have, to appreciate a couple different passages. We're going to look at three. So if you can go to the next slide. Here's our outline for today's class. If you can go to the next slide. Yeah, there we go. So we're going to look at, first, Isaiah 7, 1 to 16. Then we're going to look at Isaiah 9, 1 to 17. And then we'll finish with the very famous section in Isaiah 53, starting from Isaiah 52.13 to Isaiah 53.12. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on this time. Our God, you are in heaven, and yet you sent your Son to earth. You promised God to send the Messiah, and you revealed increasingly in your scriptures how you were going to do that and what would happen once your Messiah came. It's truly astounding. God, help us to appreciate what you revealed through Isaiah. And Lord, let us, just as Israel was meant to be, let us be changed by that information. Let us be affected in the way that you have meant. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, please open to our first passage, Isaiah 7, and we'll start in verse 1. So you can go to the next slide. Just a quick reminder of the background of this prophet, Isaiah. I don't know why part of it is being cut off on the projector. Just look on the side screens if you're missing something. Isaiah was a prophet from Judah, ministered primarily to Judah, especially around Jerusalem. His ministry spanned four kings, Uzziah, who was called Azariah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. By this point, you're probably familiar with those names. They're the kings that we keep on mentioning as we keep on talking about these prophets. They're a set of four kings that many of these prophets are ministering under. Isaiah was good, Jotham was good too, Ahaz was horribly evil, and Hezekiah was the most righteous king of Judah. Now remember, Isaiah was the one who had delivered those words of um, rescue to Hezekiah regarding the invasion by Assyria. It was Isaiah who said he's going to return to his old land, to his own land. 
So this is a very long ministry under very, very many kings. Isaiah was a contemporary of Micah and Hosea, probably finished this book of prophecy around 680 BC. It appears that different prophecies were given in this book at different dates, because at one point the fall of Samaria is mentioned to be yet future. But the totality of the book was certainly finished by about 680, 680 BC. Tradition has it that Isaiah was martyred during the reign of a subsequent king in Judah, Manasseh, by being sawn in two. Probably happened between 680 and 640 BC. So let's now hear what God revealed through Isaiah in this chapter. Isaiah 7, 1 to 16. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered, so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Okay, as always, let's start our analysis of this passage with just simple textual observations. This prophecy is given during the reign of the wicked king Ahaz in Judah. What's the specific occasion, however? What's just happened to Judah? right. They've been invaded. They're being attacked by Syria, also called Aram, and Israel. Remember, we've heard of this before. Those two united against Israel, and eventually Ahaz would call, call on Assyria for deliverance. But anyways, they're coming against Israel. They're camped in Ephraim, and the, the king and the people are very afraid. It says they're shaking like trees. God tells Isaiah to deliver a prophecy to Ahaz. Whom does God tell Isaiah to take with him? Yeah, Shir Yashub or Shir Jashub, and this is Isaiah's son. 
says, take your son with you. By the way, your Bible may include a footnote telling you the meaning of a son's name. What is the meaning? A remnant shall return. So we have a prophecy in the name of this son. God tells, or God through Isaiah tells Ahaz not to be afraid. Why should Ahaz be afraid? What promise does God give so that Ahaz should not be afraid? What does he promise about this invasion? That's right. It's not going to succeed. It's going to fail. They have a plan. They say, let's breach Jerusalem. Let's set up our own king there. He says, it's not going to work. It's not going to come to pass. The invasion is going to fail. Therefore, don't be afraid, Ahaz. Don't be afraid. God even declares that within 65 years, Ephraim, that is another name for Israel, the northern kingdom, it will be shattered and it will no longer be a people. Then God says, if you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Then God tells Ahaz to ask for a sign, whatever Ahaz wants it to be. But Ahaz won't do it. Why not, according to Ahaz? I don't want to test the Lord. That would be an evil thing. I mean, think about all the times Israel tested the Lord. I don't want to test the Lord by asking him for a sign. What's the irony of that statement, according to verse 13? Judy. Exactly. Yeah. So he says, you say you don't want to try the Lord by not asking for a sign, but the fact that you're not asking for a sign is trying to the Lord. You are testing his patience. He's told you to ask for a sign, and you won't. You're testing the patience of Israel and the patience of God. God then says he will give Ahaz his own sign. A virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now notice the term virgin. The Bible may have a footnote that says the term can also be translated maiden. The Hebrew word is Alma. The term signifies a young woman who has just reached full sexual maturity and therefore the marriageable age. Remember the marriageable age in ancient Jewish society was right after puberty, about 12, 13 years old. This is normal for the time. Now, since an Alma has only just become sexually mature, an Alma was also considered to be a virgin. Just made sense. The word Alma is used only seven times in the Bible. And only three other times is it used in a way in which the context helps us understand the meaning of the term. I'll give you those three. The word is used in Genesis to describe Rebekah, who met Abraham's servant at the well before marrying Isaac. The servant refers to Rebekah as an Alma. The word in the NASB is translated as maiden in that verse. And the surrounding verses make it clear that she is a virgin. She has not ever known a man. Alma is also used to describe Miriam in Exodus 2.8. She was an Alma when she spoke with Pharaoh's daughter at the Nile. The NASB translates Alma as girl in that instance. And then there's one other instance in Proverbs 30 verse 19 where the writer is describing the way of a man with a maid, that is, the way of a man with an alma, as an example of an event that has no immediate trace. He actually compares it to a couple of different things. You have a, the way of a bird in the sky. You can't see the path of the bird after it flies. The way of a snake on the rock. You can't tell that the snake was there. The way of a ship in the sea. Its path disappears once it goes through. And then it says the way of a man with an alma. 
So the idea there, there is a sexual union and perhaps a loss of virginity, but none of it is detectable, at least not immediately. So those are the only three, three instances that, that help us understand the, the term Alma. One more note, um, some commentators have suggested that based on Proverbs 30, 19, the last instance that I mentioned to you, and certain other linguistic links, Alma could refer to someone who's technically not a virgin. A new young wife could still be referred to as an Alma or a virgin, according to these commentators. Notice the indefinite article for virgin in verse 14 of Isaiah here, Isaiah 7. This isn't a specific virgin that Ahaz would recognize or know about. This is a, an unknown virgin, at least at that time. It says that she will bear a son, which means a male human being. And notice that she is the one who names him. It says she shall call him. Now normally it was the father who named the son in ancient times, not the mother. She calls his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The boy will eat curds and honey, that is, unrefined food. And then we have this phrase, knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Before Emmanuel is able to refuse evil and choose good, what does God promise will happen? That's right, the two kings and their lands, those two kings you dread will be forsaken. Which two kings are those? Pekah and Rezin, the king of Syria and the king of Israel. They're going to be defeated. Their lands are going to be forsaken. Okay, I think you can actually uh, say all the things on this slide. Just don't go to the next one just yet. Now, before we ask some interpretation questions, we do need to look at one passage close in the context. Look just at the beginning of chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. This is going to be helpful for when we interpret. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, Name him Mahar Shalal Hajbaz, which means swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. For before the boy knows how to cry out, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Okay, there are a lot of perhaps puzzling details here in just these four verses, but let's observe a few things. God has Isaiah write a certain message on a tablet in front of two, messages, or two witnesses. And that message is, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. Verse 3 starts with, so, indicating causation. What comes after is based off of what came before. Then, we hear a prophetess conceives and bears a son. And God instructs Isaiah to name the son the message that he previously had written on the tablet. Now, there's another prophecy here, similar to the one that we just heard in chapter 7. Before this child is able to cry out my father, or cry out for his father, or cry out for his mother, what does God say will happen? Yeah, Roy. 
Yeah, the Assyria, specifically mentioned here, is going to come to Syria, that is Damascus and Aram, going to defeat them, take away their plunder, but not just Syria, but also, but also Samaria, meaning Israel. So just like in the previous passage, God says those two kingdoms are going to be defeated, and it's going to be Assyria who's going to do so, and it's going to take away all their plunder. Okay, now let's ask some interpretation questions. Who is the prophetess in Isaiah 8? The prophetess, not Isaiah's son, is his wife. It has to be his wife. Uh, it's kind of strange that he's called a prophetess, but Isaiah would be immoral to conceive a son with anybody else. This has to be his wife. Now, why is she called a prophetess? Isn't Isaiah the prophet? Why is she called a prophetess? Now, it's possible that there's some information we just don't, uh, that we aren't given. That maybe there was something prophetic about her that we don't know about. More likely, it has to do with the children she bears. Because both Shear Jashub and this child, Mahar Halal Hajbaz, they both have prophetic names. And so perhaps for that reason, she is, as the one who bears these children, deemed a prophetess. What did God mean when he told Ahaz, if you will not believe, you surely will not last? Why end his word of prophecy in chapter 7, at least in that first section, with those words? It seems to be addressing the king. So what does he mean, if you don't believe, you surely will not last? Consider, he just had revealed that Syria and Israel were going to be destroyed. But then he says, if you don't believe, you will not last. So, uh, go ahead, Joe. So he's to that seems to be... Um, that seems to be what we're looking at here. Joe, you, you suggested that he could be referring to the kingdom of Judah and the kingship in Judah. Ahaz, remember, is a wicked king. And he's about to demonstrate more of that, that wickedness in just a moment with how he reacts to God's sign. But he says, if you don't believe, just like Samaria fell or is going to fall, so will you. So will your kingdom, so will your kingship. You'll be just like Samaria. And God has said as much in the other prophets. If you don't believe, you will not last either. Now Ahaz claims that he will not ask for a sign in order not to test the Lord. But based on Isaiah's rebuke, we know that that's not true. What is the real reason Ahaz won't ask for a sign? Yeah, he doesn't believe. He doesn't trust in the Lord. Therefore, he's not interested in a sign. And we remember from the other books, we know that Ahaz actually goes after the gods of Assyria. He'd rather trust in them, not Yahweh. So he's not interested in a sign from Yahweh. But God's going to give one anyways. And it's the sign of this special birth. Now, was the young woman of Isaiah 7.14 really a virgin? Or is she really to be understood as an actual virgin, or is she simply someone of young and marriageable age? Yeah, Roy. Yeah, 
Yes, uh, you've, you've articulated it well, Roy. I think that's the way we should approach this question. To repeat what you said, well, first of all, to say, linguistically, it's a very weak case to say that this could mean anything other than an actual virgin. There is that passage in Proverbs 30, verse 19, and that, that suggestion that it could refer to somebody who was recently married. But uh, the other sections of the Bible use the term to mean an actual virgin, a young woman who is a virgin and is about to get married or is ready to be married. So there's that. But even more importantly, actually what you said, Roy, is the same thing that John Calvin says whenever he comments on this issue between the Jews and Christians in his own time. Because there's a lot of debate between the Jews and Christians when it comes to this passage. He says, even if the Jews are right, and this doesn't refer necessarily to an actual virgin, it just refers to the age of a particular woman, usually a virgin, this sign would be completely insignificant if it didn't mean a virgin. He just told Ahaz, ask for a sign as supernaturally obvious as something in Sheol or in high heaven. And God says, you don't want one? I'll give you one. There's going to be a supernatural birth. A virgin will bear a child. And as Roy was saying, if it were just like, oh, this young girl is going to bear a child after she gets married, what kind of sign is that? That doesn't seem significant at all. It would not make sense. So whatever this term might mean in other cases, Isaiah must mean, and his audience must understand, that this is an actual virgin. And yes, there's the commentary from the New Testament, but even from the Old Testament, we can understand that without looking for Matthew's or Luke's commentary. Another question. These two passages talk about, this is related, these two passages talk about the birth of two children, Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 8. And before either of those children grow up, God says that Aram and Israel will be destroyed. Considering how similar the prophecies are, should we say that these children are actually the same? That the one spoken about in Isaiah 7.14 is actually Isaiah's second son, which is talked about in Isaiah 8. Should we make that conclusion? No, we shouldn't. Why not? First of all, they're not named the same. He says specifically, this child shall be called Emmanuel, but in the second one he says, call him this other name. Meher Halal Shajbaz. So the name is different. What else? Yes. Who is the one who actually names the child? He says, it's the woman. It's going to be the virgin who names this child Emmanuel. But then in Isaiah 8, he says, you are to name the child this other name. And then, there's one other thing we can point to. What is the other thing? Yeah, in Isaiah's case, right? That's, that's my, the other point that we should bring up. The son for Isaiah is not born of a young virgin girl and not even somebody who's been a virgin recently. This is her second child. She certainly cannot be referred to as an Alma because she's not a virgin and hasn't been a virgin for some time. So for three different reasons, Isaiah and his wife cannot fulfill what Isaiah 7.14 says. Now some say, that Isaiah's son in chapter 8 is a partial fulfillment of Isaiah 7, verse 14. Some good commentators do say that, but I don't like that explanation because Isaiah's son and his wife do not meet any of the conditions that are given in Isaiah 7, verse 14, except that the prophecy that's given after that son of Isaiah is born is very similar to what was given in Isaiah 7, 14. But the conditions are not there. They're not even sort of there. 
Now, some might object and say, well, if this if these two are not exactly related, then, and Isaiah 7.14 isn't at all about Isaiah's son, then why would this sign be relevant to King Ahaz? I mean, Messiah's birth is a long time after the fall of Syria and Israel. Why would this sign be significant to Ahaz, who's under imminent invasion of Syria and Israel? Well, that is a fair objection. And I can't exactly say why God chose to give Ahaz the sign in the way that he did. Though, considering the circumstances and Ahaz's wickedness, God may have simply stepped aside from Ahaz and he says, you don't want a sign? Okay, I'm going to give a sign, but it's not really for you. That could be one way to explain it. But there, there are other things we can point to as well. Perhaps this sign of this virgin birth and the coming of Emmanuel was given as a confirmation of God's covenant with Israel and his promise to redeem them and restore them despite their sin and despite the unbelief of their ruler. God is saying, no matter, what, no matter what happens with this invasion, no matter what happens due to your own unbelief, know that it doesn't change my plans. I still will send one to redeem Judah and Israel one day. Or perhaps we could also say this sign, the virgin birth and the announcement of Emmanuel, is a rebuke to Ahaz. He says, Ahaz, you unbelieving king, you and your wives and your gods and even your wicked descendants on the throne, they will not be the source of ultimate deliverance for Israel. A virgin, unknown to you, will have a son, supernaturally born by God, and this son will be God with us. He will be the one to deliver Israel. But even before he grows up, Aram and Israel, those enemies you fear, they will be shattered. Yeah, Bill. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Let me repeat it. Is it possible that verse 14 in chapter 7 and verse 16 actually refer to two different children? The first one referring to the Messiah, the second, uh, the second one referring to Isaiah's own child. I think that is part of the argument for those who say that Isaiah's son is a partial fulfillment of what's given in chapter 7. I do think it's an interpretive stretch to say that there's a, an immediate shift like that, considering the, the common sense would be to understand the son in verse 14 um, to be continually described going into verse 16. Now, I'm sure not every commentator agrees on that, but I would, I would say you would be interpretively hard-pressed to argue that verse 16 is a different person without any other clues in the context to show that it's a different person. But it's a good question that you bring up, Bill. Okay, uh, another question. Does the name Emmanuel mean that the boy will literally be God with us? That the boy will be God? Yeah, Joe, you say yes. Well, we know the way it turns out. And yes, it is true. Emmanuel will literally be God with us. Matthew makes that clear in his gospel by even quoting this passage in Isaiah 7.14 with Jesus' birth. But Emmanuel is just a name. Can't names be interpreted various ways? Has not Israel been told before by God that God will dwell among them and be with them via his tabernacle, via his temple, via his saving presence? Has not Israel 
claimed at various times that their God was with them and therefore they could face their enemies. Could this son simply be an affirmation that God would be with his people again in some way? After all, the phrase is, the phrase Emmanuel is used twice in Isaiah chapter 8, but not clearly in connection to a particular person. Now those things are worth noting, but we should also note that whenever God directs a child to be born with a certain name, given a certain name, that name is always significant regarding a fulfilled or soon-to-be-fulfilled promise. With the coming of this son, God would be with his people in a way that he wasn't with his people before. There's going to be a new way that God is with his people. And how could that be unless this child was God himself? Moreover, while many Hebrews were named various pious names, no one ever thought to or dared to name his son God with us, Emmanuel. There appears to be a certain expectation in this phrase that just felt like going too far for any normal Israelite. But God tells Isaiah, and then Ahaz through Isaiah, this virgin will miraculously bear a son and confidently name him God with us because she will know that this phrase is true. God will be with his people. So like Micah 5.2 and his statement about the Messiah's going forth being from of old, the phrasing here is somewhat enigmatic, but the name of the virgin's son is indicative that with this son, God would be with his people in a way that he wasn't before, even because the son himself is God. Now, in case that still feels a little bit ambiguous to you, let's now look briefly at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Turn over there. We don't have time to fully analyze this passage, and after we read through it, you might have Handel's Messiah playing in your mind. It's a wonderful bit of prophecy. Let's notice a few things. Isaiah 9, verse 1 to 7. And you can go to the next slide. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So, is the son that is to come going to be God or simply have God's blessing? It's going to be both, yeah, but clearly he's going to be God. His name will be Mighty God, Everlasting Father. No one can fulfill these names except God himself. 
the son that is to come, the Messiah is to come, will be God. So we can be sure Emmanuel means literally God with us, God on the earth, in the flesh. This must have blown the minds of Isaiah's listeners, and even Isaiah himself. A human son will be God, and he will sit on David's throne and rule David's kingdom forever. Notice also some repetition of some other prophecies, promises that we've seen. Verse 1, Gentiles are included in God's salvation plans, Galilee of the Gentiles. Verses 2 to 4, Israel's enemies will be destroyed and the kingdom of Israel will be restored. Verse 5, war will cease. The boots and the cloaks will all be burned up. There's no need for them anymore. So like we saw from Micah, Isaiah is declaring an astonishing truth. God himself will come as a man to deliver Israel and reign on David's throne, born not in the king's palace, but from a young, no-name virgin. But it's about to go to another level of astonishment because we've got another passage to look at. Turn to Isaiah 52. And you can go to the next slide. Right, put all the information on this slide, leave it there for a second, and then we'll go to the next one. So Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. And then we'll read to the end of chapter 53. Long section. Again, we won't be able to appreciate all of the significance, but we will notice key segments of, the, of these passages. All right, Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Oh, some quick background. In the latter part of the book of Isaiah, the prophet gives a number of revelations concerning the coming servant of the Lord. God keeps referring to the one who will come as his servant. This begins in Isaiah 42. It um, comes again in Isaiah 49. Then again in Isaiah 50, and then finally here, Isaiah 52, going to the end of Isaiah 53. Here's what it says, starting in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper, and he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had been told them, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to a slaughter, or to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off? out of the land of the living, 
for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured, him, poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Incredibly, incredible, poignant passage. Fortunately, it's long, so we have to talk about it in summary form. But notice his shift between chapters 52, chapters 52 and chapter 53. How do the verb tenses change? That's right. Future tense moves into past tense. Notice 52.13 says that this servant will prosper and be exalted. This is consistent with the other prophecies we've heard about the Messiah, even from earlier in this book, Isaiah 7 and 9. He will be exalted. He will prosper. But what other stunning revelations are given here about the coming one? What's one, one thing revealed? Yes, Danny. Okay. Oh, that's a that's. A okay, good question. Yeah, Danny is noting that that language there in verse thirteen, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. It is perhaps reminiscent, certainly similar to what Isaiah says about God sitting on His throne in Isaiah six. Let's see if I can find it real quick. Yes, Isaiah 6, verse 1. I saw, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Is that an allusion to the divinity of Jesus? I'm not sure, but certainly there's, there's an extreme exaltation to the servant that is being talked about here between these two chapters. But what, what other revelations besides the prospering and the exaltation of this servant are given? What's one thing? Yeah, Joe. Okay, yes. So it talks about he doesn't have any uh, stately form. I think probably best to understand that as he will be humble. He will present himself humbly. It doesn't mean he was ugly. It just means that he didn't look like someone who was majestic, someone who has the, the pomp of kingship. What else? right. His appearance was marred, and it says, more than any man. And we can tie together some of the other verses here. He will suffer greatly. He will be sorrowful. You see the word anguish in this passage. You see him being crushed. You see him um, being uh, afflicted. This servant is going to suffer. He's going to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Emphasized again and again in these chapters. What else? 
Yes, Roy. Ah, he's not suffering for any old reason. He's suffering on behalf of the people of Israel. He says, our iniquities, uh, he caused the iniquity of his, or he bore the iniquities of his people. Um, he will suffer and even die for the sins of his people according to God's will and what will be the result. What will he obtain for his people, Craig? That's right, he says they will be healed. It says he will justify them. He's going to cover their transgressions, pay for them, and cause these people to be made right with God. He will be presented as a guilt offering for his people. Not just his people. Back in Isaiah 52, verse 15, it says he will sprinkle many nations. People who did not see or under or or had not heard, will understand. So this is, again, there's a reference here that goes beyond the kingdom of Israel, but specifically the people, his people, he's going to suffer for them as a guilt offering. We see other things here. He will be righteous. Uh, 53.9 says, um, He had done no violence. No, there, there was no deceit in his mouth. He's called the righteous one in verse 11. Uh, he will be counted, though, as an evildoer. In verse 9 it says, They assigned his grave with wicked men. And in verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. They will consider him to be an evildoer. They will reject him. He will die, but instead of being buried in a grave for wicked men, he will actually be buried in connection with a rich man, in the grave of a rich man. And after he dies, God will raise him up. Uh, we see this in, it does say in Isaiah 52.13, he will be exalted, but Isaiah 53.10 he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And verse 11, he will see it and be satisfied. Verse 12, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. So he will be raised to new life. He will be exalted. And his work will astonish the world. Isaiah 52, 15, kings are going to be shutting up their mouths on account of him. And Isaiah 53, verse 1, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So you can actually um, list all the things on this slide. Be humble. He'll be righteous. He will suffer greatly and be sorrowful. He'll be counted as an evildoer. He will die. But instead of, instead of being buried in the grave for wicked men, he'll be buried with a rich man, or as a rich, in the grave of a rich man. He'll suffer and die for the sins of his people, uh, obtaining justification for them. His work will impact Gentiles. God will raise him up and exalt him, and he will astonish the world. Let's talk some interpretation now. Why is part of this prophecy given in the past tense? Yes, Dwayne. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I, I, Danny was telling me that, 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 that MacArthur lays out the argument for that. Certainly we know that in other sections of Scripture, 
both in the Old Testament and New Testament, future events are sometimes talked about in the past tense. Uh, perhaps that's simply to emphasize that it's sure to come to pass. Or it may additionally be, as you were saying, Dwayne, and as MacArthur argues, that this is actually going to be the testimony of Israel in the future. When they repent, when they look on the one on whom they pierced, they will say, we did all these things. We esteemed him as an evildoer, even though he was our guilt offering. And that's when they return to the Lord. So perhaps both of those things. But there's, it's meaningful that Isaiah 53 is given in the past tense. How would these words have impacted the men of Judah who heard them? Who heard them from Isaiah? Yes, Craig. Yes, I think this would have been very astonishing and perplexing. I mean, it's not that it's unclear, but it's just, how can this be true? God's servant who's going to be exalted, who will be God, according to Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 7, he's going to die? He's going to suffer for the sins of his people? He's going to be esteemed a transgressor? How could that possibly happen? What were you going to say, Rob? Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting, I'll repeat what you said. You're, you're saying that you believe that in many synagogues they actually don't read this chapter just because of how shocking it is. Okay, yeah, that's what you've heard other people say. Certainly there's a lot of uh, uh, tension between Jews and Christians and among Jews themselves when it comes to Isaiah 53. What are you going to say, Roy? Yeah, so you bring up that. Even in the New Testament, people are still perplexed not understanding this section of Isaiah. They know the Messiah is going to come, be exalted, he's going to reestablish the kingdom, but this whole thing about suffering, we don't know how to fit that in. But yeah, they, they did not understand that he was going to come two different times. One, to save his people from their sin, and another time to reestablish the kingdom of Israel on the earth. Certainly, there is a, there's certainly supposed to be some comfort from this, that as God has been revealing, Israel needs a savior, Israel needs covering, it's going to come. It's going to come through a special servant of God. Israel, don't be disheartened. God has not cast you off. You will be brought back. Just as the other prophets revealed, you will be forgiven, you will be restored. But now we see how. It's going to be through the suffering of a special servant, the servant of God, God himself, the son of God. Well, is is this... uh, or I've got to ask this question, who is the suffering servant described here? You know that this is the Lord Jesus. If you've read the Gospels, it's completely obvious. You've probably heard, and we are alluding to this a little bit, stories of Christians reading this passage to Jews, the Jews not knowing where it is from, and the Jews confessing that this has to be talking about Jesus. I don't, I've never tried that myself, so I can't testify to that, but it makes sense because Jesus' fulfillment of these words is so complete. And the words of the other prophets. 
I'm sure Isaiah and the others who originally heard this prophecy were very puzzled about how all these things could fit together. He's man and yet God. He has an eternal kingdom and yet he's rejected and put to death. He's righteous and yet he suffers for transgression. He's the king and yet he humbly accepts his own slaughter. How could all these things be fulfilled together? But God has shown us in the final revelation of Jesus, in Jesus' own coming. Jesus does exactly all of these things. He's rejected by his people. He dies on their behalf, and even on behalf of the Gentiles, all according to the plan of God. And therefore, God highly exalts him. Only God could be righteous and die for the sins of his people, but he had to become man to do so. So Jesus is the fulfillment, the only possible fulfillment of what is declared in Isaiah. But before we move on from this passage, we have to tackle one issue. We have to go back to Isaiah 49, uh, Isaiah chapter 49 for just a moment. Because some look at the Isaiah passage we just read in, in Isaiah 53 as not pointing to Jesus or even necessarily the Messiah, but to Israel itself. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is Israel. That is the standard Jewish interpretation. Now before you say, that is so blasphemous and stupid, look what Isaiah 49, 1-4 says. I, I do think it is blasphemous in, in a way, prideful. But look at what Isaiah 49, 1-4 says. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named me. This Again, this is one of the passages that talks about the servant. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me, and he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord, and my reward with my God. Uh Uh-oh. God says point blank that the servant Isaiah is describing is Israel. And yet, why can we confidently say, despite what is said here in Isaiah 49.3, that the people or nation of Israel cannot be the servant that Isaiah describes in Isaiah 53? Yes, Steve. That's a great point. When we combine all of the verses that talk about the Messiah, we see that God is sending a coming one, not uh, a nation, but a person, and this person is going to be God. And so just uniting that with Isaiah 53, we have to say, no, the servant is not Israel. But we can also point to something else. Yes, Joe? You're talking about here in Isaiah 49? Yeah. Yes. If we just look at the context of Isaiah, or the, the verses we just read, verse 5 says, And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. How can Israel save Israel? How can the sons of Jacob somehow call back the sons of Jacob? It doesn't make sense. Same thing in Isaiah 53. 
some of those things could apply to Israel. Yes, Israel may have grown up like a tender shoot before the Lord. Maybe Israel didn't have a stately appearance at first. Maybe Israel was forsaken by God for a time. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Um, Later on there, uh, it says, and by a scourging we are healed. There's a part there that talks specifically about his people. Oh, yeah, I, uh, verse 8 and 53. He was cut out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. How can Israel s- suffer the transgressions and redeem Israel? The nation can't fulfill these things on behalf of itself. Someone has to do this for Israel. You're going to say something, Rob? Right. Yeah. So, right. You point. Again, we can always talk about the New Testament interpretation confirming our interpretation of the Old Testament. But for the sake of kind of uh, redirecting a Jewish interpretation, which does not take into account what the New Testament says, certainly we can say, even here, the, the description of the suffering servant calls for someone to act on, be, or act on Israel's behalf. Israel cannot fulfill these things for themselves. Running short on time, but if it's quick, Dwayne. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. So there's the R of Israel in Isaiah 53 versus the my servant. Real quick, Danny. Right, so verse 11, as you were saying, it identifies the servant as the righteous one who will justify the many. How could Israel be that righteous one? That's why it does kind of feel prideful and even blasphemous to say that this is, is Israel. Oh, you think you're the righteous one? You think that you're the one who suffered and you're the one who's due justice and all, and all those types of things? You don't, you don't realize that you need someone to save you because of your iniquity. That's actually what Isaiah has been talking about the whole time in this chapter. So it's a, a sad reversal of what Isaiah originally meant. So, or, yeah, real quick, Bill. That... Okay, Okay. so you're saying, or getting to my next question, how should we understand Isaiah 49.3 then, if the servant is called Israel? Well, apparently, Jesus can take on that title. The Messiah can take on the title of Israel because he so identifies with his people. And as you were, you were suggesting, that, Jesus is, or that Israel is a type of Jesus. Certainly, Matthew in his gospel is emphasizing again and again how whatever happens to Israel happens to Christ. Out of Egypt I called my son. And, um, and, and uh, there's weeping in Ramah and uh, the... Uh, I forget the other the town name, but referring to the slaughter of babies due to Herod, just as Israel went through weeping, there's weeping re- related to the Messiah, uh, related to the slaughter of children. So anyways, to wrap things up, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 cannot be Israel the nation, but one whom God would send on Israel's behalf, one who, though the king, would suffer and die in order to pay for the sins of his people. And before Isaiah, God had not revealed this shocking truth about the Messiah, not specifically. And even when Jesus came, as we pointed out, the Jews, most of the Jews, did not expect or comprehend this part of God's plan. But this is how all the prophecies related to Israel's forgiveness and restoration, uh, this is part of the means of how those things are going to come to pass. Israel needs a guilt offering on its behalf. By the way, how many years before Jesus' coming did Isaiah prophesy this? About? About 700 years. Amazing. 
So we've seen some striking prophecies today regarding the Messiah. The zeal of the Lord of hosts has brought them to pass, and yet there are still some to come. We haven't seen the everlasting kingdom of, uh, of the Messiah brought onto the earth, but it will come. Some questions to you to consider. Or can we go to the last slide and, and put all the, uh, not the last slide, the second to last slide, put all those questions there. Some questions to consider. Certainly this has some relevance for evangelism, proving that Jesus is the Messiah from the Old Testament. Reasoning with the Jews that an interpretation that Isaiah 7.14 is about Isaiah's son or Isaiah 53 is about Israel, they just don't fit. They just don't fit in the text. But also we should ask, or can you yeah, put the questions on there? We should ask for our own sake. Has Jesus suffered for your sins? Is he your guilt offering? Or are you still trying to make yourself right with God by your own good works? Are you still trying to do what Israel tried to do? You need a justification by substitute, not yourself. Do you love Jesus for his amazing heart revealed in salvation, that he was pleased to suffer and die for God's will and for you? Even you Gentiles? And if you love Jesus and he has suffered on your behalf, have you submitted to him in everything? Do you seek diligently to learn and do all of God's will? Salvation, glorious truth demands it. If you have other questions or comments, come see me afterwards. Uh, even after the ministry of Isaiah and righteous Hezekiah, Israel turned back to sin. And so, God, yet patient, sends another prophet to warn judgment is coming. And that's what we'll talk about next week with Jeremiah. Let's close in prayer. God, what just mind-boggling truth. God, you would reveal this to Isaiah. We see it even full of revelation from the word of the apostles, but just so astounding. You came into the flesh and you suffered and died for Israel and then you brought in the Gentiles too. You brought in us. Thank you. Thank you, God, for being so incomprehensibly merciful. Thank you for demonstrating a humility beyond what we could ever understand. You deserve all the glory. You are the great God. Thank you for sending your Messiah. Lord Jesus, help us to live in a worthy way of you and of the salvation that you've given us. Empower us by your spirit. In Jesus' name.